0: Manufacturing descent since 1996 This is Hell The lives of free people of color In the antebellum and even pre-revolutionary South Are far too often overlooked when studying the history of the United States By failing to recognize their contributions and even their mere existence We miss an important aspect of Southern life that existed alongside And was at times interwoven with the institution of slavery The fact that yes, there were people of color who are relatively free with limited rights Makes the issues of both race and slavery far more complicated and complex As different communities had varying understandings of what a person of colors was or should be And who can be free and who should not Our conception of who was free and who was not becomes Far less clear When we come to the realization that the more well-off free people of color Actually owned slaves Benefiting and profiting from the cruelties of slavery Even fearing the impact the end of slavery would have on their own bottom line To the point they would sacrifice their very lives for the cause It's time we re-examine what we know And what we don't know about life in the South prior to the Civil War Throughout the period, as more radical demands of abolitionism arose from those fighting for the end of slavery and the beginning of freedom for many people of color in the South, the calls for more radical punishment of free people of color also became louder. With politicians vociferously Exploiting rising hatred For their own popularity In one of the many contradictions of Antebellum life, free white people And people of color would intermingle Socialize and even depend upon each other In their community as concerned neighbors Those same whites would then Cheer on the hate speech of populists And vote them into power, disconnecting Those actions from their treatment of their neighbors As if their actions had no consequences In a few minutes we'll speak with Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. Author of Beyond Slavery's Shadow Free People of Color in the South On why the focus on race in the antebellum South May be a bit misleading or exaggerated or completely displaced Warren is assistant professor of history At the University of North Carolina at Greensboro He's also the author of last year's North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715 to 1885. You can follow Warren on Twitter at w w e Miltier, W.E. Miltier. And you can find out more about Warren at his website, warrenmiltier.com. That's M-I-L-T-E-E-R. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, what's new by you? I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks as my stomach was exploding at about this time last week. What's new by you?
1: Um, I'm about the same. I've just been hanging out, seeing seeing friends this weekend. That's sweet. Yeah. You, uh, this last weekend or coming up? Um, no, just, just this past weekend, Um uh, yeah, um, spent some time uh, up north I went up north a little bit Hung out with some friends I haven't seen in a while That's Where, been good. Where'd you go up north? Uh, well, I, north for me, I guess Just just like Wicker Park <laughs> I just see Everything's north for me
0: So I, you didn't end at the House of the Rock? On the no, rock. I okay. didn't
1: good. I didn't end up there
0: Thank God Right now, it's raining And the Hawk is in flight As in the intense Chicago Clipper wind that we get here now when it's raining that usually means I get a great night's sleep but not last night. I love the sound of the rain and the thunder and the cl- and the you know the wind it just it's just so great. The flashing of lightning always puts me to sleep. But between getting up several times to lock windows which were rattling with the wind to the water overflowing the clogged gutters of the building next door leading to a three-story waterfall cascading upon an abandoned ice cream cart a trashed bicycle by neighbor had attached a carrier to transport an elderly person he was caring for in a wheelchair, an old job he had, and an abandoned and trashed compost project that is now nothing but a loud drum when the water comes pouring off the slumlord's building next door, three flights down, and on top of all of that, our white noise machine was going off like it was set to 11 every time the wind roared. In between all that, rattling windows, the constant drumbeat of rain on discarded debris outside my window and a noise machine that sounds like I live near the airport, I got very little sleep last night which means I am currently jacked on caffeine. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell?
1: This week's question from hell is And for your third wish?
0: (laughs) And for your third wish? Question mark. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Lots of you have been going to thisishell.com and clicking on support lately. Thanks to Max in Melville, New York, who got one of our red trucking caps, as did Andrew in Grand Junction, Colorado. But Andrew also picked up the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century USB drive with dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The This Is Hell black tote bag and two This Is Hell medical masks. And thanks to Earl in Montclair, New Jersey, who also got a face mask. Thanks to Max, Andrew and Earl. We truly appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebookcom Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to me at Chuck at This Is But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we announce every week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and The Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's Question from Hell following our conversation with Warren on people of color. Free people of color living in the south Prior to the civil war Again the question from hell is And for your third wish And for your third wish Question mark Brave enough to be streaming live Dumb enough to be goofy Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover This is hell And Jess has this week's hangover cure
1: This week's hangover cure Is either the creation of an algorithm Or an actual hangover cure A suspiciously undated article that does not have a byline and is surrounded by advertisements was posted at the Daily Mail's website and is headlined, What Can I Eat to Cure a Hangover? The story, again attributed to Nobody, reports, instead of tucking into a greasy breakfast, start the day with a a friendly bacteria-packed probiotic drink, a smooth and creamy-tasting one that is gentle on the stomach and really feels like it's coating your insides Is the Muller vitality variety. Then follow up with a large bowl of cereal and milk, I don't know why, again we don't know who the I is that is being referred to, but Special K seems to work, probably because it gives it quite, quite a long energy boost and has high levels of re- revitalizing B vitamins. The person, or self-aware algorithm, that wrote the piece then states, I could get all prissy here and tell you to simply drink less, but I doubt you'd take that advice at New Year. Before you go to bed, uh, take six sinar cyanur- Artichoke tablets artichoke can help the liver to process alcohol and lessen its effects that makes this week's hangover cure a probiotic smoothie followed by a bowl of b-vitamin enriched cereal and then an artichoke supplement whether that cure was written by humans or prissy machines or just an ad for molar vitality special k and sinara (laughs) tablets,
0: i like that prissy comes up in the algorithm what the hell that is such a bizarre article i don't trust anything the daily mail anyway but jeez i can't even trust that hangover cure Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you would like to support our really stupid business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. every Friday. And this podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, Discussing stereotypes, biases, and prejudice can be very difficult terrain As it will likely reveal the stereotypes, biases, and prejudices of whoever is leading the discussion Whether they recognize they're revealing their own unrecognized beliefs or not So when talking about others' biases, the person doing the talking is usually simply outing their own bigotry It happens all the time, especially when it comes to people who live in the city talking about those who live in rural areas City dwellers in the United States often blame just about everything wrong that's happening in the world on country folk And vice versa, believe it or not Of course, all of this blame is based on broad-sweeping generalizations that are based on anecdotal or second-hand or even third-hand evidence If not on some caricature promoted in an article, book, TV, show, or movie But a recent column appeared in the Pantograph, the Bloomington, Illinois, daily newspaper covering the twin cities of Bloomington and Normal. The column came with the headline, Life Makes Sense in Country, Farm Folk Grounded Amid a Crazy World. And it displayed all of the stereotypes the country people, according to the columnist, have of city folk. You know, that elitism we so often hear about when it comes to urbanites and their demeaning condescension towards those who live in rural areas? Well those who live in the country, apparently, have just as elitist and condescending attitudes to people like me who live in the city. So if you think snobs only live in the big city, think again. After I went through the alleged biases of those in the country who looked down upon us in the city, we shared an interview From almost 15 years ago to the day A discussion we had back on October 21st, 2006 When we spoke with Washington editor for Harper's Magazine, Ken Silverstein Ken was on back then to talk about his cover story for the November 2006 issue of Harper's Two years before Obama was elected And it was titled Barack Obama Incorporated The Birth of a Washington Machine It was Ken's warning That if we were hoping for change from a potential Obama presidency, that hope may not go fulfilled. But you can only hear what turns out to be the first part of a two-part look at rural bias and a warning about the potential shortcomings of an Obama presidency from two years prior to being elected by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell. Then tune in to our live stream every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after again. At patreon.com Slash thisishell Coming up the far too often ignored lives Of free people of color In the antebellum, antebellum U.S. South We will also have this week in Rotten History Some of your answers To this week's question from hell Which is And for your third wish And for your third wish We are still looking for volunteer board operators here on this is hell we'll tell you about that in a little bit and don't worry you're not completely a volunteer we're getting close to paying a living wage live from the united states where capitalism is the virus this is hell when we do not recognize that the south and the united states prior to the civil war and dating back to before the revolution had many free people of color, depending upon where one lived in the South, we miss an important part of what the South was. Here to help us have a better understanding of the antebellum South in the United States and the people who live there and their relationships with one another, as well as the legacy they leave behind, Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. is author of Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South. Welcome to This is Hell,
2: Warren. Thanks, Chuck. That was an excellent introduction. I really appreciate your um, offer to speak with me and the time you took out to read the book. I got to tell
0: you something about this. I this I did a very close reading of this book because every t- every sentence I read, I had a new question. So if I got if I do too close of a reading at any point, please forgive me. But this is just this is just a fantastic work. It really is. You write over the course. You start off your book by writing over the course of nearly eighty years. Amariah Reed lived a life that was typical of many men of his generation in the South. Born a subject of the British Crown around 1762 in Nainsmith County, uh, Virginia. By age sixteen, Reed had enlisted in. The effort to overthrow British power in Virginia and several other colonies. After participating in various skirmishes against British forces, Reed was present for the surrender of Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown. Following the war, Reed returned to to his home county, settling down on an 80-acre tract with his growing family by the early 1800s. Reed's 80 acres eventually became the inheritances of his children, who would continue to prosper from the foundations laid by their father, yet... Amariah Reed also stood apart as a man who was born free in a time when most other people of color in the future U.S. South were born enslaved. How did Reed avoid being born into slavery? How would someone who is a, and I know that from further reading of your book, this is a term that I shouldn't be using because it's too specific, how could someone who is a black person be born free when slavery already existed in the South?
2: Right. Yeah. So in the case of Reed, we don't know exactly how he became free or how his family became free, but more broadly, um, there were a couple of different ways that people could be free. They could either be born that way because of their connection to a free mother. So the laws in the South allowed uh, children of free mothers, no matter what their race was, um, to be classified as free. And then also you could become free through a process called manumission. And so manumission is a legal process in which enslaved people are uh, become legally free people.
0: Was this life for a free person of color in any way similar to what a black person's life was like in the South following the end of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery? Was, was his life uh, like the life experienced in the Jim Crow South to any degree?
2: I think in certain ways, there are some parallels. um, And it would depend a lot on who he was dealing with specifically. Um, But thinking about it more generally, uh, there are some instances of segregation that are already around in the time of of Reed's life. Um, But most of that segregation is very much confined to a few institutions such as uh, churches <laughs> um, and some other public venues that you may only encounter in cities. So whether he is somebody who lived in a pre rural place would have encountered those, such as um, theaters, things like that. Um, it's not so clear. So that would be one, thing, one area where there might be some parallels between his place and the Jim Crow South. Um, but in many ways, I would say that the world he lived was a place where the structures of the Jim Crow South were very much in their infancy, where uh, communities were developing and getting used to the idea of segregation and uh, separate institutions for people based on race. Uh, But at the same time, because he's living in a society in which slavery exists, uh, I think you could argue that the ex, the possible extremes for a free person of color in the late 1700s and late 1800s potentially are, are worse than what somebody might, um, uh, experience in the Jim Crow South, uh, because of slavery's existence. I mean, there are examples that I discuss in the book of people being, um, enslaved, uh, who were free persons, either born free or or made free, who end up enslaved because they are kidnapped and pushed into slavery. Um, Or by the late uh, antebellum period, we see laws even popping up that allow um, people who have committed crimes to be enslaved. So I would say that, especially the kidnapping aspect, is, is a little bit different than what we would see in the Jim Crow South. But yeah, there are definitely some parallels. So, but it's
0: important, as you point out in your book, that these were inconsistent determinations from community to community. So for a person like Reed, how difficult was it for him to travel? How limited was your mobility as a free person of color because of the fear that you might be kidnapped or enslaved again?
2: Right, so I think early in his life, mobility was um, in general better for free people of color, but by the time he, he dies in the 1840s, There are clearly restrictions that have popped up across the South that make it difficult to move around. And uh, some of those restrictions have to do with people who are trying to enter one state from another state. Uh, So a lot of Southern states pass restrictions preventing that. Um, But also, you have laws on the books requiring free people of color, especially in the case of Virginia, to uh, carry free papers. And free papers are documents that explained that an individual was free and how that person got free. And so the idea of those free papers were to uh, serve as a, a type of ID to some extent. Now, as you, as you mentioned, um, there are inconsistencies throughout the south and the way that these laws work so there are always people who are going across the borders regardless of the fact that it is illegal or there are people who don't carry free papers even though they're supposed to by the word of the law um often the enforcement becomes very situational which i mean we see that kind of stuff today in our own society how um the law is enforced in certain situations and not in others and that because of that um The law can be enforced in a very uh, prejudicial way and certain individuals will be targeted the poor uh, those people who are not as well connected um, even though the law is uh, on paper more broad
0: and as you point out in your book these free papers they didn't exist this kind of certification and authorization that didn't exist prior to the revolutionary war prior to the declaration of independence in 1776 So what does it reveal to you about the very beginning of the United States when these kind of free papers didn't exist at the Declaration of Independence, but by the time that uh, the Civil War eventually rolls around, they're very much in place throughout the South?
2: Right. So, I mean, I think that example and many others suggest that in the case of free people of color, um, we don't see this increased access to freedom and democracy that is often emphasized in uh, the literature of the early United States. In in that literature, the early United States is portrayed as somewhere where rights are increasing for different classes of people. When it comes to free people of color, that's not the case at all. Um, Instead, we see uh, their position in society increasingly politicized. And because of that uh, increase in their politicized position, We often see them um, losing their rights, losing their ability to move uh, as free as they would have, say, in Reed's childhood in the uh, late 1700s.
0: And you point out that the Social Order of the South stood on a platform steadied by an assortment of intersecting social hierarchies that made Reed and other free people of color both privileged and victimized both celebrated and despised who was celebrating people like Reed were the people like Reed being celebrated in the anti-slavery North and despised in the pro-slavery South, or were they also celebrated in the South?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are examples of free people of color being uh, celebrated in the South. Um, I found examples of people who are celebrated for being say war heroes in the American revolution or the war of 1812. Um, there are people who are celebrated for being particularly skilled in a variety of different ways, whether that is maybe they have musical skills or they're able to uh, do perform their work in a certain way at a certain qu- with a certain level of quality. Um, so, yeah, there there definitely is celebration in both the north and the south of free people of color. Um But then at the same time, uh, there, as you mentioned in the quotation, that there are people who are actively pushing against that celebration, trying to suppress that celebration of free people of color as individuals.
0: So how much were those uh, achievements erased from history? How difficult was it for you in your studying of this uh, history? How difficult was was it for you to find out about these achievements and the people associated with those?
2: Um interestingly enough uh if you look in the right place there is documentation pretty good documentation of this celebration of free people of color you see it in personal papers where people have uh maybe written about a free person of color in their community i remember specifically one example where um, a free man of color had saved the um building a building owned by this white person and so he you know in his diary he's praising this free man of color for uh, the great work that he's done to save his property uh, so you you see stuff like that and it's it's not entirely difficult to find um but i would say that if you're d- depending on the types of sources you're looking at you're more likely to find the uh negative portrayals of free people of color, especially if you're thinking about like newspapers where, of course, a lot of this politicization of free people of color is taking place. Um, So, yeah, if you look beyond those types of sources, uh, you can find it there. You
0: also point out that during the earliest days of colonization, many of those who traveled from Europe and established themselves in North America had decided that the individuals they termed Negroes, mulattoes, musties, and Indians, people of color, were inherently unequal to the mass of people they categorized collectively as White This viewpoint vindicated the denigration, enslavement And genocide of the indigenous people of the Americas As well as provided justification For the capture and commodification of thousands of people With connections to various parts of Africa Who arrived in American ports As enslaved laborers So at the beginning of the United States Was white supremacy controversial? Was it a matter of debate among white people? Did abolitionism only appear As more and more restrictions Were being placed on all black people in the South Whether they were free or not?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that those ideas are in constant tension, right? Abolition and um, even the idea of equality amongst people of different races are are in constant tension with uh, white supremacy. And I think what we see happening from that revolutionary period into the 1860s is a um, growth in the strength of the rhetoric coming from people who are white supremacists. And I lay out in the book a um, a few reasons why that's the case. First of all, I think what we see, even in this revolutionary moment, is that slavery is being challenged not only within the United States, but globally. And I think that the proponents of white supremacy and the proponents of slavery are very much aware of that and are needing to justify um, more and more what they're doing um, and what they support and so as a result free people of color are being pulled into uh, their desire to defend their position in society and to justify what they already have been doing in the colonial period but also what they're trying to do in the 19th century because of course we see a great level of uh, dispossession and expansion on the part of the United States um, at, from its early years. But it, it, that um, process is grad, is increasing. And I would say actually it's rapidly increasing if we compare it to what's going on in the colonial period uh, through the 19th century. Um, the united states is constantly doubling in size um and as it's doubling in size and growing we also see this expansion of slavery in the south especially but that growth is taking place as i said at the same time that slavery more in a global sense is becoming less popular at least people you know people in polite society globally don't want to talk about slavery as a positive thing but uh, um, people in the deep south have to react to that and so (laughs) as a result they are trying to talk about slavery as a positive thing trying to talk about uh white supremacy as the natural order of their society even though uh i think i demonstrate throughout the book that there are people who are quite aware that that's not the truth including the people who are spouting the uh, crazy ideas about free people of color and uh white supremacy more broadly
0: yeah, and you point out the disconnect uh, politically as well, you know, when it comes to the relationship between white people and free people of color, uh, the the way that their lives are just so contradictory when it comes to their political choices as opposed to the way that they act with their neighbors. And you mentioned the racial hierarchy, that racial hierarchy was not the only form of hierarchy helping to uphold the social order. Hierarchies. Based on wealth, gender, occupation, reputation, and religion coexisted with ideas promoting white supremacy and discrimination against people of color. So to you, what explains the Southern obsession with hierarchies? Was it necessary to have all of these hierarchies in order to reinforce the institution of slavery? Why is there this Southern obsession with hierarchies?
2: Yeah, well, I I think what's going on, at least what I'm trying to point out, in the book is that different southerners both white and of color valued different hierarchies to different levels so i guess to to maybe break that down a little bit i think that it's pretty clear that there are some say white southerners who's if they had to pick like which hierarchies most important to them for them it's wealth difference so they are the people who support rich on top of poor that's their key issue now they also are interested in racial hierarchies and supporting gender hierarchies as well but for them if you want to appeal to them You talk about class differences, you talk about the poor and how terrible the poor are and how they're a blight on our society or a blight on the community, that they are, you know, takers, all of that kind of rhetoric works really well for them. Whereas I think there are other individuals in the South who are specifically interested in an order that puts white people on top of people of color, no matter where those people of color stand, say, in the class hierarchy. Um, And you see that as something that's particularly common amongst, say, uh, lower class white people, working class uh, white people who see free people of color as uh, competitors in the uh, workspace, in the market. And so those people, you know, they're they're not interested in necessarily supporting a rich over poor um, hierarchy, but they're definitely uh, interested in uh, supporting a white over people of color hierarchy. Um, and then, you know, I could use similar examples about gender. But at the same time, while I try to break that down, it's possible for an individual to value all of these different hierarchies at the. It, as, at the same time. But usually what you see is that they don't uh, value each of them in the same way or to the same degree. I th- and so because of that, that's why you can have um, a society in which well-to-do free people of color are treated differently by white people than poor free people of color are treated by white people.
0: So and you point out that the intersection between different forms of hierarchy ultimately led to the political and social inconsistency that characterized the South from the early days of European colonization through the Civil War years. So how was the South politically inconsistent? If these social hierarchies led to social inconsistencies that led to political inconsistencies, how was the South political and politically inconsistent because the way that we see it you know or the, the history usually sees it is everything from the south is very monolithic and not inconsistent in any way
2: right yeah so I mean it, in my book I try to uh, provide examples of political debates where free people of color being discussed in state legislatures And what you will see in many of these debates, is that there are certain people who are pushing for more extreme measures against free people of color whether it's uh, controlling their mobility um, all the way to potentially kicking free people of color out of the state or enslaving free people of color so there are people with those ideas but then you have other individuals who are not quite that are not quite comfortable with um, some of these ideas, and some and some of these individuals um, want free people of color to have rights based on class. So, You know, they they want a certain class of free people of color to have voting rights, whereas there are other whites who want all free people of color to uh, be denied the right to vote. Um, or going back to this extreme debate that takes place in the 1850s about uh, potentially enslaving free people of color, you see some white people who are you know, strong supporters of that idea. They want to create a strict racial hierarchy in the South, the one that we imagined exists in the South um, in many cases, where white people are free, people of color are enslaved. But you have other individuals who are concerned that if you start enslaving people who are free, like them, being white people, um, what's the next step? They're, They're very concerned about that. So if we enslave free people of color, are we going to start enslaving certain classes of white people? And by the 1850s and 1860s, there are uh very radical pro-slavery people who are talking like that they're you know throwing out the idea yeah maybe you know poor white people could be enslaved too um so in that sense yeah we see some diversity amongst uh southern politicians and southerners white southerners more broadly you write of the
0: legislation to control the lives of free people of color. You write radical legislation approved at the state level did not always reflect buy-in from local people. Furthermore, lawmakers largely failed to fund their radical mandates. So were these restrictions then more about political expediency to win votes than actual implementation?
2: I think so in, in certain cases. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Um I think one of the the best examples for me is the restrictions on the movement of free people of color, um, especially across like state lines. You see a lot of free people of color going back and forth across state lines in the South for work. There's some individuals who are even um, requesting that the state ignore those laws that have been passed restricting free people of color to vote because they, they want the, the cheap labor that free people of color provide. Um, but when you think about the laws that are being developed, especially say the the rules about movement, uh, you don't see the state creating a serious apparatus to enforce those laws. It's all up to the people at the local level, what they want to do about enforcing these laws. And as I mentioned, in certain cases, uh, the People at the local level don't want to enforce them at all because it's against their financial interests to do so.
0: You write that white people may have discussed free people of color as one group in the halls of their legislatures, but they also interacted with them largely as individuals with unique attributes that reflected their more complicated positions in society. And that just sounds like a, a very deceitful, insincere, two-faced relationship. Was was white hypocrisy an open secret?
2: I I would imagine, I think that uh, for a lot of people, it it had to be, uh, especially for free people of color. uh, They had to realize uh, what was going on because, you know, a lot of the politics of this time period, it's very local, but it's also very public in a sense. You know, people are uh, publicly voting. You know, it's not a secret ballot in part this time in the 19th century so yeah you know they have to recognize that there's some hypocrisy but then at the same time um it can get even more complicated than you know just like neighbors dealing with neighbors because many free people of color um especially as we get outside of what I define as the Upper South. So the Upper South would be like Virginia and Maryland, Delaware, that region and going into um, other parts of the South, but not exclusively. Uh, There are many free people of color who are related to white people and quite and they have quite close relationships. I mean, we're talking about many free people of color in the 19th century who have white parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and, you know, they live next door to these people. Um, And so that makes their situation even messier because you could potentially have relatives who are publicly, you know, supporting political candidates who stand to take away your rights. Um, Or you have, you know, relatives who don't support that kind of, of situation. All of that exists. Within the uh, antebellum South, thank God all those feelings have gone away, right? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are a lot of parallels between uh, the society of the antebellum South and the society we see today. We Uh, are speaking with. More than I think we would imagine.
0: Yes, definitely. We are speaking with historian Warren Eugene Miltier, Jr., author of Beyond Slavery Shadow Free People of Color in the South. You can follow Warren on Twitter at W.E. Miltier, and you can find out more about Warren at Warren Miltier. Com. so you also point out that societal norms about gender that extended extended from dress to types of education to legal rights caused fear oh, sorry caused free men and women of color to experience southern life differently whites also applied disparate forms of treatment toward free persons of color depending on their economic situation poor free people of color did not fare the same in the south as the regions free per- persons of color who held slaves or ran successful businesses. Both whites and people of color recognized and valued individuals in their communities differently based on their reputations for veracity and propriety. Whites respected the economic impact of free people of color and acknowledged the value of skilled free persons of color. This is all as you were mentioning earlier. So relatively well-off free men of color who were viewed as honest, proper, and polite were treated one way, while free women of color who are relatively poor and seen as improper and untrustworthy experienced life completely differently. Were free people of color rewarded by white society the more they assimilated into white capitalist society? Was it greater economic value equals greater social value?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of uh, situations, that was the case. And I think the most clear examples of that are the free people of color who were uh, slaveholders in the Deep South in particular, um, where you would see free people of color who may hold, you know, a few dozen uh, enslaved people in bondage. And so, yeah, those individuals, uh, in certain cases, receive a lot of respect from the white people around them. And we see that both in day-to-day interactions, but also um, in the court system. Many of them are able to uh, wield rights that we would be surprised about, like they're able to sue white people in court and actually win. So that means that you have to have a judiciary that takes you seriously. And you also have to have um, other individuals in your community that take you seriously for that to happen. Uh, So, yeah, these, these people who are playing into the system, they're able to do that. And there are even a couple of free people of color that I discuss in the book who are able to use the power, the social capital that they have from being business owners and, people with wealth to, um, in certain ways, control uh, their poor white neighbors. So uh, for instance, there are free men of color that I discuss who try to influence the votes of poor white people in their community who are in some way in debt to them. Um, and this is in the context in which these free men of color themselves can't vote. But because they have money, because certain white individuals are living on their property, they try to use that as a way to have influence. And according to what they say, because it's all I have to work with, they they claim they're successful in doing that by threatening their tenants and saying, hey, you're going to vote this way, or else I'm going to kick you off this land, which is actually very much common practice in the 19th century amongst well-to-do people of all races. using their their control over uh, their rental properties or uh, other uh, assets uh, to gain favor and then control the the votes or, um, I guess, other ways of being able to uh, publicly assert yourself of the poor people. And you point out that by the late
0: 18th century, if not earlier, free people of color had become a population situated largely in the Upper South, which you were mentioning, including Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, and the District of Columbia. By 1860, the overwhelming majority of the South's free people of color, nearly 86%, lived in the Upper South. Whereas the laws suggest that free people of color were an equal burden for the radical lawmakers in both sections of the South, population figures reveal that the free persons of color was more of a political boogeyman in the Deep South than an actual presence. In many parts of the Deep South, whites would have been hard-pressed to ever meet a free person of color. So were politicians in the Deep South winning elections with attacks on free people of color, despite there not being any free people of color? And if so, what explains the fear of people who many have never encountered?
2: Yeah, I, they're, they're definitely um, winning power in parts of the Deep South, um, at least you know partially through their attacks on free people of color. There, there are other issues as well they're at hand but what i suggest in my book is that free people of color in a way become uh, targets because when you're arguing for the issue of slavery and you're trying to be say tough on the issue of slavery you can only do but so much when it comes to attacking uh, enslaved people. I mean, they're already enslaved. They're already going through uh, a terrible situation. And politically, it doesn't make a lot of sense to attack white people, uh, although there are a couple of people who are, who are thinking about that. So um, free people of color become the most obvious Target when you're saying, Hey, I'm going to strengthen the laws to protect slavery. Well, one way of doing that is to go after free people of color and restrict their interactions on um, enslaved people. And of course, as, as you mentioned, and as I write about, uh, there are not many free people of color in, say, a state like Mississippi. But nevertheless, you know, most people in Mississippi are aware that free people of color exist. Um, they hear a lot about free people of color in the North in particular, and how terrible uh, their presence is in the North and how, you know, a place like New York or Pennsylvania is is free of slavery and they're free people of color all over the place. Like, you know, that's a nightmare for uh, certain people who are living in Mississippi or Alabama who've invested quite a bit of capital in establishing their plantations and are trying to get rich or already have gotten rich off the uh, exploitation of enslaved people. So, you know, I think it's, it's playing on this uh, idea of a possible future as well, that if, you know, we don't restrict free people of color and keep them down, well, you know, Mississippi could become New York one day and we don't want that.
0: And you also mentioned that many of the region's most financially successful free people of color, especially in the Deep South, but also in some parts of the Upper South, built their fortunes, at least in part, through the exploitation of enslaved men, women, and children. So how should we understand slavery differently when we learn that free people of color in the South were, like white people, benefiting from the exploitation of the enslaved labor of people of color in the Deep South?
2: Yeah, so I mean... I think first of all, I I, want to emphasize that this is a relatively small group of free people of color who are doing this. But at the same time, um, the fact that free people of color are participating in this uh, practice demonstrates how central slavery was to the economy of the South and also the economy of the United States, that People who want to get rich, people who want to um, rise in their social stature, um, see slavery as a important way to do that. And ultimately, for some free people of color, um, reaching those goals of wealth and uh, higher social status were more important than uh, creating any particular race based bond with uh, enslaved people.
0: In your book, you quote Do not view laws and political rhetoric as explicit evidence of the viewpoints of everyday people, and instead try to place them in their proper, proper political and social contexts. Political elites across time and place have implemented laws for a variety of reasons that extend beyond attempts to address the day to day concerns. Of the people they claim to represent. And earlier in our conversation, we were talking about using newspapers as sources, as opposed to reading from journals. What has attention being given to written laws and political rhetoric as it is printed in newspapers from the time? What does that focus mislead us into thinking about free people of color, both in the deep South as well as in the upper South?
2: Well, I think uh, the most blunt answer would be that you know we're talking about some kind of democracy in the 19th century south which 19th century south in no way is a democracy i think that's that's the number one uh issue to just go ahead and put out there that you know why why should we assume that uh laws produced in a society such as the uh antebellum south where votes are openly being manipulated where the majority of people can't vote um why should we think of that as being representative of people's views? I, I think people who've uh, assumed that have um, maybe gone a little bit too far. Uh, also, I think it's important for us to look at other sources in order to understand people's views, because the, the laws can be misleading um, just the way that political processes work. I mean you know, think about where we are right now and the conversations that are going on about uh, politics in the United States and are, I mean, first of all, we've got issues with, you know, uh, minorities making rules and and um, making decisions for the majority in the society. And um, I think, you know, that's what's going on in the 19th century, too, in the Deep South and in, in the Upper South. Um, But also, you know, the way that people are living day to day um, versus the decisions that politicians are making. It's important to know to know understand that difference because we can't make sense of some of the evidence that I've I've uncovered if we don't do that. So this idea of free people of color and white people operating as neighbors makes absolutely no sense. Can't be imagined if we're just thinking about the laws on the books and the fact that they're getting more and more extreme as time goes on. Um, But if we recognize that, say, in a rural farming community, um, people have to depend on one another to get their crops up, uh, to take care of their families, and sometimes, you know, they don't have a choice about what race a particular individual is, um, especially amongst, uh, say, poor people in uh, the, the rural South. They don't have that type of flexibility. Um, if their neighbor is a free per- if you're a white person and your neighbor's a free person of color, uh, you have the choice of either trying to uh, harvest your crops on your own. Or you can get the help of the people next door. And those people just happen to be free people of color. And so, of course, a lot of uh, poor, or middling white people are going to choose to uh, get the assistance of those free people of color and vice versa. Because if, if you don't do that, you won't survive. You
0: also write that less than five years after the end of the Civil War, media outlets across the United States were abuzz with the news of the election of the nation's first Colored U.S. Senator, in quotes. One newspaper described the election of Hiram Revels, the new senator from Mississippi, as an act of retributive justice. The article explained that nearly 10 years ago, Senator Jefferson Davis left the Senate and plunged into the Red Sea of rebellion in order to perpetuate the slavery of a race. Now, one of that races elevated the position which he held and the seat he occupied. Mississippi has repudiated the ex-president of the rebellious Confederacy and elected a Negro to succeed him. But you add in a short autobiographical statement composed after his term in Congress, Revels explained, I was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina on the 27th day of September 1827. My ancestors, as far back as my knowledge exists extends, were free so that it may be seen that from experience, I knew nothing of slavery. What does the election of Hiram Revels to the Senate from a family of free people of color and never slaves, as far as he knows, reveal about any retributive justice that may have happened in this election?
2: Right. Well, <laughs> it, I think, suggested that uh, justice may be a, a tad limited because, uh it's pretty clear to me that Hiram Revels is able to take the benefits of being a free person, somebody who was born free, um, and use that in the post Civil War period to uh, gain a position that probably would have been quite difficult for him to obtain had he been uh, poor or enslaved um, or uneducated. And so, You know, that's what I'm really trying to get at with that example is to highlight how important free status was for free people of color, that it was meaningful, even though it was limited in many ways, it was very much meaningful. And uh, in a world in which slavery no longer uh, existed explicitly, uh, Hiram Revels was able to take advantage of the benefits of Uh, That were given to him In the period in which slavery was legal
0: I have seen him referred to And many of the other politicians Who you list uh, African-American politicians Who were elected to office During Reconstruction I have seen them in Countless TV shows Probably on the History Channel Because it's not a very good History Channel uh, Where they refer to Every one of these gentlemen As former slaves To you what explains Why we want to see them as slaves and not as free men of color?
2: Well, I think that it, um, I guess it works for a variety of different people. For some people it's easier to you know, explain what happened in this time period um, in a very simplistic fashion, to talk about free people of color, having a variety of, Positions of society could be quite confusing, I think. Um, Also, I think that. Many free people of color saying the position of somebody like Hiram Revels would not have found it beneficial to. Overemphasize their uh, pre-Civil War status, especially in the context of a place like Mississippi, where um, there were not that many free people of color in it, in the pre-civil war period so i think you know that that is coming from a variety of different sides and then there's just you know a, a loss of memory that i think has taken place because or has occurred because as time has gone on people have tried to construct uh a single narrative for people of color in the South and in the United States more broadly. And it's not easy to fit free people of color within that narrative when so many uh, free people of color in that narrative when so many enslaved people uh, had had contrasting experiences to those free people of color.
0: And I want to touch on the legacy of all of this before I let you go. You write, the persistence of the injustice that pervaded the lives of free people of color before the end of the Civil War are particularly apparent within the post-war criminal justice system. Developed in the 18th and 19th centuries, the process of targeting persons of color, especially poor people of color, has ballooned over time. The exaction of excessive criminal penalties, the transformation of convicted persons into forced labors and the criminalization of particular activities for people of a certain racial categorization were in their infancy when local officials targeted a handful of mostly poor free persons of color before 1865. So did the Civil War then and slavery but was left untouched was the but what was left untouched was the precedent of racial discrimination through the law is the legacy of slavery the laws accru- uh, that were written to restrict people of color was there already a system in place that the US could adapt in restricting free people of color before the civil war was even over so they could still implement some sort of institutional inequality after the war
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely the the ideas that were in their infancy in the late 1700s through the Antebellum period um, become the foundation for what happens in the Jim Crow period to both uh, free people of color, but also the formerly enslaved people. Uh, So... In my book, I talk about um, the way that criminal criminal penalties were used in the antebellum period. So, for example, there were laws on the books of many Southern states that said that if a free person of color cannot afford to pay a fine, that person can be hired out, quote-unquote, um, to pay off that debt. But what we see And the way that those laws were used is that many times they weren't applied at all, that um, free people of color would be convicted of a crime. They would either be uh, punished through a uh, moderate fine or maybe some type of physical punishment or imprisonment. But also we see instances where uh, judges and communities decide that they want to target certain individuals by, uh, per, by assessing a uh, a fine they know that person can't pay, and there's a lot of inconsistency. Like I said, with this, so one individual in that community may be fined a dollar, and another one will be fined fifty dollars, or fifty dollars, and uh, the eighteen hundreds is a lot of money. And so when somebody's finding a, a poor person $50, they know what they're trying to do. They're not simply uh, trying to punish that person, but they want to make sure that that person is going to be hired out. So uh, we see an expansion of that kind of thought process in the post-Civil War period where uh, the law says one thing, but because uh, the law is not precise and the way that it assesses penalties, that it gives um, judges and juries a lot of leeway in the way that they decide to punish individuals. And, of course, you can weaponize that against certain categories of people, and I think we see that um, in Jim Crow America. And I think there are some individuals who would argue that we still see uh, an abuse of excessive fines in our current society. And you point out that radical calls for
0: freedom contribute to radical discrimination—a blowback of radical discrimination from the far right, from those who believe, who are pro-slavery or uh, supportive of white supremacy. Mass incarceration then comes out of radical punishments to restrict poor, free people of color. How much were those radical punishments and mass incarceration? How much was, was that caused by radical calls for abolition?
2: Well, I think that um, there are probably some limited connections between calls f- for abolition and uh, what we see when it comes to criminal punishment, because in the era that I'm researching, I think that there's a lot of sorting out going on. So. Um, Some individuals I think are clearly recognize that criminal punishment could become a profit machine, but they haven't all come to that conclusion yet. And they haven't completely developed um, all of the processes that are necessary. So instead, they're targeting individuals instead of targeting whole classes of people. The laws... Are written in a way to provide that opportunity, but they haven't figured out yet. Oh, I'm going to, you know, start a plantation and and fill my plantation with free men of color who um, have been convicted of petty crimes and then assigned an excessive fee. They're not at that point yet.
0: Just a couple more questions for you. You point out that we must abandon the simplified version of the South in order to comprehend more fully the historical experiences of the Southern population in all of its diversity. The existence of the free man of color who owned enslaved persons of color for the purpose of making a profit seems to be a historical contradiction. But instances like this make much more sense when we force ourselves to conceive of the slaveholder of color not simply as a man of color, but also as an investor, a businessman, a person who valued financial gain over broad ideas about equality, fraternity, and liberty. So, Warren, why do we not recognize the role of capitalism in slavery as much as we do the role of race?
2: Well, I think that um, partially that's a product of uh, more recent events that have taken place. So, um, I think some people prefer to see uh, free people of color as part of a, I guess, for lack of terms, a, a, a black collective in which um, all people of, of color are interconnected and have shared interests. And I think what we see with the examples say of the uh free people of color who are enslavers that indeed that's not the case at all that the the interest of the enslaved person the interest of these individuals who uh enslaved them were not the same and that we shouldn't be and i guess my the point that i'm trying to get across is that we shouldn't be surprised to see that there are individuals who are people of color who don't care about the what might be seen as the larger interest of other people's color um i think some people find that shocking whereas i i don't think it's shocking at all because we see these examples over and over again in history um so that that's where i'm trying to go with that and i mean i think that all just to add on to that 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 also applies to uh, any other group or, or category of people, you know, we see examples of women who don't support women's rights. We see um, people, white people, who are interested in making profit off of uh, poor white people. Um, so, you know, in a, in a world in which that exists, you know, that makes that makes perfect sense that uh, these characters that I discussed would operate the way they do.
0: Yeah, but making them all monolithic, you know, that's a lot easier to do. That's a lot more simple of history to learn.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it is, and I think, and it fits with what some people want the world to be like instead of um, uh, seeing the world as it is. And, uh, I mean, I think that's a challenge that uh, I deal with with my work more in, in general, you know, that there are people who have a certain viewpoint of the world And what I'm talking about doesn't fit with what they think, about how they think the world works. Um, But indeed, you know, these these things happen. These uh, conflicts between people uh, who are, you know, being categorized in the same way, whether it's by gender or race or class, they, they happen.
0: We have been speaking with historian Warren Miltier, author of Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South. Follow Warren on Twitter at WEMiltier and find out more about Warren at WarrenMiltier.com. One last question for you, Warren, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. Warren, who won the Civil War? (laughs)
2: <laughs> who won the civil war um i think we're, we're still trying to figure that out now right uh technically the united states won the civil war um but we have a, a very strange situation in this country that that's not clear um based on the way that certain people operate you know people are, are able to walk around with pride in uh supporting uh, or, uh, looking at people who were against the United States as, as heroes and people they look up to. Um, yeah, so we have a very strange situation, but yeah, I mean, for those people who don't know the, the United States won the civil mm-hmm. war, uh, now, if you're thinking about, you know, at, at, on the ground level who won the civil war and what groups of people won the civil war. Uh, I think that's, that's a bit more complicated. Well, did it ever end? Well, did the civil war ever end? I mean, I think it did as far as, you know, militarily, but in the minds of many people, no, I don't, I think there's some people who are still fighting the civil war and are, uh, you know, <laughs> still thinking about Uh, ideas of secession and clearly the 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 causes of the war and uh, the ideas that help to support secession have not gone away from our society and they're still alive and well whether that's you know white supremacy or even just the the general idea that there is a divide between uh, the north and the south and that our cultures and worlds are so different That uh, somehow we can't come together.
0: Warren, this is really a fascinating book, and I strongly suggest that all of our listeners go out and check your book out. Warren Miltier, author of Beyond Slavery Shadow Free People of Color in the South, go read this book before the governor of South Dakota says you cannot. Warren, I really appreciate you being on the air with us this week. This is really a fantastic history, and I'm so glad to be introduced to it. Thank you so much for being on our show. All right, thanks, Chuck. All right, take care. you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell if what you just heard from warren eugene Miltier, when he was discussing beyond slavery shadow free people of color in the south if that made you angry sad enlightened you in some way made you realize that yes this really is hell show your support By either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from hell is, and for your third wish, (laughs) and for your third wish, Fabio L., Says, I would like to place an NFT on this wish. <laughs> Krimsky K, I wish my monkey paw didn't come with the whole monkey on my back. <laughs> uh, Mike C um, <laughs> has an has an MF Doom quote. Last wish, I wish for more wishes, and I wish they fixed the door to the Matrix. There's mad glitches. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, Adam A for uh, forever fries with that. <laughs> And the last one for today, um, Kim G says that my first two wishes don't have unforeseeable twists, rendering them regrettable.
0: (laughs) You know, I went into a store one time, and on the shelf I saw a monkey's paw. It was a fake monkey's paw, but I was really close to buying that fake monkey's paw. Oh, you
1: didn't get it? No, I
0: should have gotten it. I was a little too afraid it might have been real, but I'm pretty sure it was fake. I didn't see any one-handed monkeys around, so. We will have more of your answers At the end of tomorrow's show Again, the question from hell is And for your third wish And for your third wish The person with our favorite answer To this week's question from hell Wins whatever choice of merchandise you want You can see all of our stuff right now By going to thisishell.com And clicking on support It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous Naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky Goopy, gloppy, globby Gory this week in rotten history October 28th, 1958 63 years ago this Thursday in Monroe, North Carolina, two African-American boys this always gets bad. In Monroe, North Carolina, two African-American boys were arrested, let's see, beaten by police and jailed for having allowed a white girl about their own age to kiss them on the cheek. But you got to wonder how you a young male African-American is supposed to respond to a question to have your cheek kissed by a young white girl of the same age in 1958 Alabama. If you say yes, clearly in Monroe, bad things happen. But if they had said no, that may have been just as offensive as well. So was the whole thing a setup? As the older boy, James Thompson, who was nine years old at the time, told the story years later, he and his friend David Simpson, age seven, were playing with some children in the nearby white neighborhood. And one of the white girls momentarily kissed each of them on the cheek. So there was no formal request. She just went up to these two kids who were just sitting there innocently and kissed them on the cheek. It's just some white girl going around kissing the cheeks of young male African Americans. The kids continued playing and later went home thinking nothing of it, but the girl happened to mention the kiss to her parents. Jesus. And within hours, police arrested both boys, who had no idea why they were being detained at the police station. They were told they had raped a white girl and were physically beaten. So now these kids think that, Getting kissed on the cheek without actually requesting such a kiss or the person requesting permission, just getting kissed randomly on the cheek is equal to rape. Meanwhile, the girl's father quickly organized a gun-wielding mob, naturally, that assembled in front of the Thompson family's home. For the next six days, the two boys were held in jail. They were not allowed to speak with their families or with a lawyer. James Thompson would recall years later that he and Simpson were sent to a psychologist who told them they should be castrated for having a white girl randomly kiss you on the cheek. You should be castrated. As word spread of the so-called kissing incident, the mother of both boys, the mothers of both boys, were fired from their jobs, and the mob on the Thompson's lawn burned crosses and shot at the house throughout the night. All because some white girl kissed two black boys' cheeks without their permission Finally, the two boys were formally charged with sexual molestation And were sentenced to terms of indeterminate length at the North Carolina State Reformatory Despite the fact that the person who is actually guilty of the, any sexual molestation here is the white girl As the incident made national news, the president of the local Monroe chapter of the NAACP spearheaded a campaign to get the boys released, and former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt spoke out in their defense. After President Dwight Eisenhower chose not to step in, look, if you want to win elections in the United States South where black people were disenfranchised, you had to play the racist card. It took three months for North Carolina governor, luther hodges to issue the boys a pardon and authorize their release but he neither he nor the state ever acknowledged having made an error not to this day and after having survived the ordeal the two boys and their families never received so much as an apology the state of alabama still has not apologized for this That's rotten history, the kind of history that conservative voters in Virginia do not want taught in their schools, and they're reportedly determining who the next governor will be based on if they will ban such history from public education. To find out more, turn on the Fox News channel any given evening. And this is Hell Jess, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com.
1: Tomorrow we'll be speaking with... Adam Smith on his book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Looking forward to that there, Jess? That sounds like it, for- yeah, I don't know anything. I, I, it sounds interesting.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you don't know anything about poppers. They're gross. Also on tomorrow's show, uh, we're sharing your email. Send your guest and topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com, and we'll read your recommendations on air. If your guest or topic is featured on the show, we'll thank you on air during the interview. So send your ideas and thoughts on the show to chuck at And we'll share them every Tuesday. And do we know who is going to be on Wednesday's show, also at 10 a.m. here at ThisIsHell.com, Jess?
1: Yep. Um, On Wednesday's show, um, we'll have economist Rob Larson on his current affairs article, How Serious is the Inflation Situation?
0: This is going to be Rob's third appearance on This Is Hell. Rob was most recently on... Right before we started doing a lot of our coverage on the pandemic I think it was March 3rd, 2020 I believe the very next show was our first reports on the pandemic But he was on back in March of last year to discuss his book Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley And he was also on back in July, or no, June of 2018 to discuss his then just published work Capitalism vs. Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom We are, and also Jeff Dorch will be delivering a moment of truth. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you're interested in running the board as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at at chuckatthisishell.com, chuckatthisishell.com if you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell email me. Uh, we're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and then a Patreon podcast on Friday at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And we actually pay our board operators. Not much, but it's something, but it's just about to get up to a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you do need to live in the Chicago area, but Jess is way down in Hyde Park, so just as long as you're in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can do work with us remotely, stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos, you too can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they can expect when they listen. Again, if you're interested in becoming a producer here on, in our studio or are interested in contributing online, like pulling quotes for us for our interview posts, email us at chuck at this is hell. Com. Thanks to our guest today, Warren Eugene Miltier Author of Beyond Slavery's Shadow Free People of Color in the South Which is really a fascinating book Because it reminds you that the institution of slavery Commodifies all lives, as does capitalism Thanks to Jess and for running the board today Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing And thanks to Renal- Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History This week's Hangover Cure is we're not sure it might be an algorithm it might be a fake hangover cure we have no idea what it is especially because it comes from the daily mail which cannot be trusted we told you so this is hell
1: my demon is on my butt uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, uh. and my demon tries to knock me down